it's Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are uh, commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who, whom have set over the, um, the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They, need, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to, him, said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I, I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us, for your uh, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped, leaped to his feet in amazement and asked, asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of, a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, 
and the satraps, prefects, governors, and, the, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads sinned. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time now that we have with your word in front of us, this extraordinary account of the threat that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. We pray that as we look at this now, we'd see what it means for us in our own time now, as we seek to know Jesus better and follow him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life in a totalitarian regime can be oppressive, can be terrifying. In the late uh, 1930s, Joseph Stalin was at the height of his powers in the USSR, and uh, the author Dale Ralph Davis tells the story of a provincial meeting where Stalin's name was mentioned in a speech, and spontaneous applause broke out that uh, led to a standing ovation. And, of course, once a standing ovation was started for, the, for their great leader, no one wanted to be the first to stop clapping. And so on this standing ovation went, and everyone was clapping and kind of looking around, and thinking, what do we do now? But on they went, until one elderly man could not stand any longer, and he sat down. The authorities took note of his name, and the next day he was arrested. Uh, in 1938, in Hitler's Germany, Paul Schneider was a prisoner at Buchenwald concentration camp. On Hitler's birthday, the prisoners were lined up and ordered to remove their berets and bow before a raised swastika flag. Schneider refused to do so. They beat him 25 times with an oxide whip. Totalitarian regimes can be especially oppressive for Christians. So imagine being a Christian today in North Korea, where every household is required to have a blank wall somewhere in their house on which there should be hung a portrait of Kim Jong-un uh, above head height so that he's higher than everyone and everything else in the room. And the authorities will regularly visit and inspect whether the portrait is being adequately cared for, and any dust that accumulates on the frame will result in heavy fines, or worse, according to the thickness of the dust. And friends and family members are encouraged to inform on one another. So if you are a Christian in that environment, and we know there are Christians in North Korea, despite how difficult it would be to, 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 to be there, what are you going to do? Are you going to join the cult of the great leader, like everyone else? Well, this is the kind of question that, Daniel's, uh, that God's people are facing in Daniel chapter 3. 
So remember where we are. If you've been with us, we started looking at Daniel over the last couple of weeks. They've been taken into exile in Babylon. In chapter 1, we heard how Daniel and his, and his three friends, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to eat the fine food at the king's table, just in order to show that they were unwilling to be completely assimilated into this foreign culture that they'd been dragged into in captivity. The theme behind these chapters is a clash of kingdoms, a tale of two cities. So there is on the one hand Babylon where they are in exile, a totalitarian regime that gives no honour at all to the true God of Israel. And then there is Jerusalem where they come from. The focus of God's people, his plans, his promises for them and through them for the whole world. Tale of two cities. And then chapters 2 to 7 are unusual because they're written in a different language from the rest of the Old Testament. Not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Now Hebrew is the language of God's people at that time. Aramaic was the kind of lingua franca of the, the wider world, like English today. The language that most people in most places could understand and kind of needed to speak, at least to some extent, as a second language in order to be able to communicate with other people. So Aramaic was like that. And so chapters 2 to 7 that are written in this language, and it's quite unusual that hardly any of the Old Testament is written in Aramaic, but it's chapters 2 to 7 and a bit of Ezra. There's a sense in which these chapters 2 to 7 are focused on that wider world to give them a message. A message that still goes first to God's people as the original readers. They're still the original readers of this, and they would have still understood it. They would have been able to understand Aramaic as their second language. But it's a message designed to give God's people confidence as they think about how to live in a world dominated by seemingly all-powerful totalitarian regimes. And so today as we read this, well one question might, might be, well, you know, this is a kind of relatively well-known dramatic story that we, you know, we perhaps might associate with sort of Sunday school and children's Bibles maybe if, we've, if our background has been in, in church and Christian things at all. But our question might be, well, what does it really have to say to us in the civilised 21st century Western world where, you know, most of the time we're not being asked to worship statues and we're unlikely to be thrown into a furnace anytime soon? What does this have to say to us? Well, the thing is, it may be true that our specific set of circumstances that we're in is, is different from the circumstances here. But it's still true, Christians today, wherever Christians are found, are still under pressure to conform, to become like the world around us in different ways, to bow down to idols of different forms. So we're going to think about the particular ways this chapter can encourage us as we face those threats today. So let's dive into this. We can see, first of all, you see on the back of the notice sheet as well, First of all, God allows no rivals. God allows no rivals. So Nebuchadnezzar has set up a gold statue, an image. Do you remember last time, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue, in fact. And uh, Daniel was able to interpret the dream for him. And the gold head of the statue in the dream referred to Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar has kind of latched on to this aspect of what Daniel said while managing to kind of ignore the rest of it. 
which basically said, don't get too comfortable, Nebuchadnezzar, because you're going to be dead soon and your great empire will be conquered by someone else. And he kind of ignored that more inconvenient bit of the message and heard the gold bit. Ah, gold, I like gold, gold sounds good. And so off he goes, gets this gold image made. And just like, uh, and then just like now, in a polytheistic culture with many gods to worship, and you know, today there's many causes to celebrate and acknowledge in our wider world. Actually, this, then as now, is, is really about Nebuchadnezzar asserting power and control over the people. So if you happen to be in the uh, morning service last week, um, you may not have been, but if you were, or the week before, you'll have heard us looking at the first two commandments in Exodus. And basically, if you are a Jew, if you're a member of God's people at this point, you know, imagine yourself in Daniel chapter 3 at this time, and, you, and, and if you hear something about bowing down before an image, and you're kind of required to do that, you know it's ingrained into you, that is an absolute no-no. We can't do this. Second commandment, you shall not bow down, you shall not make any graven image and bow down to it and worship it. They know that. So God's people here, they hear bow down to an image and they're thinking, we don't do that. And do you notice how many times in this chapter we hear the words set up? Setting up an idol is exactly what God's people are told they can't do. They're told not to set up an idol. We worship and bow down to God alone. Look at the pressure then that God's people face to bow down and do what they know God has told them not to do. First of all, it's peer pressure, the sense that everyone else important is doing it. So verse 3, can you see this? The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, in case we've forgotten any, assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So, you know, you think, okay, they, it's pretty universal, this. Anyone who's anyone is kind of there and doing what they're told. And then it's not just the important people, it's that sense that everyone everywhere is doing it. We, we read verse 4 and also verse 7, if you look, nations and peoples of every language. In, in the kind of known world of the time, Babylon is the great superpower dominating everything. And everyone everywhere is required to bow down to this uh, idol. So this is kind of advertising 101, isn't it? You know, get people to believe that they're the only ones not doing it. And they'll have a severe case of FOMO and they will fall in line. That's what's going on here. But actually it doesn't work. And so they say, no, we're not going to do that. So next comes, after peer pressure, we see malice. So the astrologers who grasp them up, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold. And then finally, intimidation. Do you see this verse? By the time we get down to verse 15, um, Nebuchadnezzar has kind of brought them in and is giving them kind of good cop, bad cop, straight talk all at the same time. It's a straight choice. Fall in line or die in the furnace. And then which God will rescue you then? That's the choice. The pressure they're under, therefore. Can you see? To bow down to this idol, this image. What pressures would Christians face today in this country? 
It might not be physically bowing down, but it could be other things. A common one that people struggle with in business environments is the kind of rainbow lanyard HR policy. You know, in this company we celebrate pride, or in this company we list our preferred pronouns on our bio. And, and these are big questions for Christians to think through and figure out what is a, an appropriate response. But if you're convinced that God created sex as a very good thing but to be enjoyed in marriage between a man and a woman, are you going to join in and celebrate what you know isn't something that God celebrates? What are you going to do? That's one area that Christians can feel pressure just for example. Uh, some, some guys here are about to head off to university. Some, some others here will remember being at university. And again, the, the suddenly you're out there in the world, away from St. John's Downshire Hill, away from parents, away from everything, and, and surrounded by new pressures and new uh, things that are attracting your attention and saying, will you now bow down to this? Will you conform? You know, everyone else everywhere in the university, in the college, on your course is doing this. And you're thinking, I'm not sure God would want me to do this. No, but everyone else is doing it. It's fine. There will be the pressure to conform. And that pressure only gets worse as we go through life in different ways. And uh, sometimes in the end, you know, you can, you can end up uh, being uh, people, you know, not like, like what happens here with Shadrach, Misha and Abednego. They get targeted specifically. And people end up being... Uh, targeted deliberately. Fall in line, you will find yourself first in line for redundancy or whatever it is when the next cuts come around. So there is those kind of pressures that Christians can feel in, in society today. Uh, but another is simply in the area of our own personal idols, whatever those are. And so actually inside ourselves we have this kind of process going on where, uh, where we, we sort of feel... Being to ourselves, saying to ourselves, give in to this temptation, bow down and worship it, or you will be miserable. You won't be truly happy. And people end up in cycles of addiction to substances, to alcohol, to pornography, or to just, just to being addicted to wanting people to like me, whatever it might be. We think, I can't do without this. I must bow down and worship it. Or I will die. I will be miserable. Do you see? It's the same kind of thing that goes on just in our own hearts. Same kind of thing that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego faced here. As they were ordered to bow down to this image. But God allows no rivals. You shall have no other gods but me, he says in the first commandment. And then we feel the pressure. So the pressure's on, well, what happens next? We see, secondly, God is able to deliver. God is able to deliver, verses 16 to 18. So, we, do you remember that question that, uh, at the end of verse 15? Nebuchadnezzar's just asked, you know, if, if we do this, if, you, if we throw you into the furnace, what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? That's his kind of rhetorical question if you think about it he doesn't think there's going to be an answer to that question does he <laughs> no god's going to be able to rescue you from me that's a ridiculous idea 
But look at the response of these three friends. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So two key elements to see of that that brief response there. First, they say God is able to deliver. That is their confidence. But when they say that, they are then distinguishing between what God is able to do and what he has promised to do. And that is a vital distinction that we need to hold on to and understand today and that we often forget. So today we ask things like this. This this question might be familiar to you. If God is all-powerful, why does he allow suffering? If God is all-powerful, why did he let that terrible thing happen to me or to people I care about, whatever it is? Very common question. And the key thing is, well, there is a difference between what God is able to do and what he has promised to do. So has he promised to rescue Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the flames? Well, not as far as we know. There's no evidence of that. We're not told that. And actually today it's still true. There is no promise to prevent his people from going through tough times and suffering. But then and now, the point is there is an even greater promise. That even if things get very tough for a season... On the other side, even of death itself, comes resurrection for those who trust in Jesus. So God's people knew, even in exile, that it wouldn't last forever. And we're reminded of that later in Daniel, when Daniel quotes what Jeremiah the prophet had said, that this will last for 70 years, but then there will be an end. And beyond that, by the end of the book of Daniel, we're realising that the promise to God's people wasn't actually just about a physical return from exile. Because by the time the first readers are reading, they've come back from exile to King Cyrus and they're looking around and they're thinking, huh, this isn't quite as good as we thought it was going to be when we had this great hope of being brought back to Jerusalem and we look around and the temple that they managed to build eventually isn't really as good as it was before and it's all a bit disappointing. But actually that in the end was not the great hope that they had. By the end of Daniel we're hearing not about physical return uh, from exile but resurrection to come. Multitudes who sleep in the dust will awake. Daniel 12 verse 3. And so what is Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's ultimate confidence as they go into the flames? Not that God will definitely rescue them there and then, although that is what happens, but that's not, that, that can't be their hope because they don't know that God has promised that at that point. Their hope is nevertheless, somehow, it will be okay. That is their hope as they get thrown into the flames. For them then, in fact, they probably didn't yet have a sense of resurrection beyond the grave. But for us now, it is much clearer because Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And so we can know when we face whatever tough times we might face, God is able to deliver. Of course he is, you know, but he's the God of the universe. He made the world. He's in total control. Of course he's able to deliver and rescue. But, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say here, even if not, it will be okay. And therefore, as we face whatever 
this tough time is now, this big decision to stand firm or give in. No, we can stand firm and give in. When it comes to obeying God and going his way and turning from sin, you know, repentance as we often call it, sometimes that can seem really scary. It can seem like, no, actually, if I go God's way, that is going to involve a kind of death. Because I'm going to have to let go of this sin that grips my heart really tightly. I don't want to stop hating this person and forgive them. Because I fear what I might lose by doing that. You know, I don't want to make things right with my finances when I realise I owe a load of money to someone or whatever it is. You know, I, I fear what I might lose. I don't want to be different from my friends and refuse to join in with them when they're mocking someone or they're doing whatever it is that I know is not the right thing to be doing. I fear what I might lose if I stand firm, if I go God's way. See, like these friends, when they face the furnace, and like Jesus when he faced the cross, going God's way can look like it's just going to be death. But with God, on the other side of death, is resurrection. The author John Piper wrote a book with the title, Risk is Right. Risk is right. And his point is not that Christians should take crazy risks and throw themselves off buildings and expect God to help them to survive and whatever it is. It's not that at all. But rather, risk makes sense when you have a winning hand. If you have a guaranteed future in eternity with God, you don't need to be like the rest of the world and cling on to everything here and now as if that is your only security in this life. You can act differently because you know what is coming, even on the other side of death. The rest of the world says, don't be so stupid, don't give away all your stuff. You need your stuff. You haven't got anything else. No, I've got Jesus. And I'm going to live through death. There is life up beyond the grave. And therefore, I can give things away. I can hold things loosely. I can serve God with my time and resources. I can do things that the rest of the world would think is crazy because I've got that sure and certain hope and confidence. God is able to deliver. So go his way, even when it looks like death. And when you do that, what you find thirdly is... God is with us in the flames. That's the third and final point. God is with us in the flames. The last verses 19 to 30. So look at verse 19. The situation is dire and terrifying at this point. So what do they do? The, the, the furnace is heated seven times hotter than usual, whatever that means. Verse 21, they're thrown in. And, and do you notice it just emphasises how much clothes they've got on? You know, their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes. I mean, it's, you're being thrown into a furnace seven times hotter than usual with very flammable clothing, presumably. And, and by the way, while they're doing that, the heat is so extreme that the soldiers who are actually dragging them in are killed straight away. This is, you know, this is utterly awful. But then, what happens next? In the flames, suddenly, there is this fourth man with them. Well, who is that? Well, it looks like a son of the gods, verse 25. That's what we read. Is it, well, is it, is it Jesus? Is it, is it a kind of pre-incarnate Jesus? 
Well, many people have suggested it must be. We can't really be sure. At the very least, it's an angel. It is God present with his people in the flames as they suffer. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, God says this to his people. He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, clearly that isn't intended, is it, as a promise for all people everywhere that you can go out and find a fire and walk through it. But it is a promise that in the midst of suffering, God is with us, like he is here with the three friends. And actually, actually, it is a promise, isn't it, that in the end, you will not be burned. That is a promise. You, you, you may be physically burned now, but the future is set. That is not the end. You will be with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Author John Lennox tells the story of meeting a Christian who'd been in the gulags in the USSR. And as they talked about what it was like, the man said to John Lennox, yeah, it was really tough, unspeakably tough. And he said to John Lennox, he said, you wouldn't be able to cope with that, would you? And John Lennox felt slightly embarrassed and, and sort of sheepishly kind of agreed that, yes, you know, almost certainly he would not have been able to cope with being in the gulags at all. But then the man replied, well, before I went there, I thought exactly the same. What I discovered, though, he said, is that God does not help us face theoretical situations. He helps us face real situations. Not before we're in them, but when we're in them. And so again, when we face that pressure and we think, do I give in or do I stand firm? It feels like, well, if I stand firm, I'm going to be in the flames and I'm going to be on my own and that is going to be unbearable. But God meets us in the flames. That is what he promises. In the middle of Oxford on Broad Street, literally in the middle of the road, there is a plaque on the ground commemorating the martyrdom of Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley and later Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century on that spot. They were told to conform to the Catholic reforms of their day under Queen Mary or be put to the flames. And they stood firm. They knew God was able to deliver. They knew God would be with them. And they were not saved from the flames like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, but do you know the quote um, that Hugh Latimer says as he died, he said this to Nicholas Ridley in the flames. He said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Well, they went to glory with the Lord Jesus. But they went confident in resurrection after death. 
and the candle of that biblical Protestant faith in Jesus Christ has remained lit in this country ever since. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, how does he end? He ends the chapter praising the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. No other God can save in this way, he says. But as we'll see this time, it was in word only. It hadn't really reached his heart. We'll see that in chapter 4. But the challenge for us as readers today is whether we will identify ourselves with the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego today. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the consequences. Because we know God allows no rivals. He's able to deliver. He's with us in the flames. Let's pray. Father God, we know that the future for each of us is, is completely unknown in one sense as we look from a human perspective and it's easy to fear the unknown it's easy to worry and be anxious about the flames that might come we thank you that we can know that you are with us in the real situations that we find ourselves in. And beyond that too, we, can, we know that as we face temptation to worship idols, both in the world around us and in our own hearts, to say no to that, to stand firm, can feel like a death, can feel like something that is impossible to do has such a grip over us. But thank you for the gospel that releases us from the fear of death because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And so beyond even death itself, there is resurrection. And would that give us confidence as we seek to serve you day by day say no to sin and worshipping idols and say yes to following you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.